Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Will Ahmed, the founder of Whoop. The Whoop Band is a wearable device that tracks your sleep, your recovery, your strain and all sorts of other clever things. Its early fans include LeBron James and Michael Phelps and its newest fans include the likes of SoftBank and most of the VC universe who have just pushed Whoop in October last year to a $1.2 billion valuation. In this episode, Will tells us where the Whoop name originally came from how the band became an accidental diagnosis tool for COVID and the secret that nobody knows to gaining access to the world's most influential figures. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Whoop is is one of those brands that kind of crept up on me. I hadn't heard of it. And then suddenly seven of my friends had them at the pub one evening and were all comparing recovery rates and all sorts of numbers and charts. And I felt slightly left out. But it's one of those things that people seem to completely evangelize about and get very, very excited about. Why do you think that is? What, what, what is it about it that makes it so exciting to people? Well, Whoop does a pretty good job of... Uh, telling you things about your body that you don't you don't already know. I think that's one of the main differentiators for the product. Wearables that came before Whoop were good at telling you things that you kind of already knew. Yeah. And Whoop is good at giving you this lens into what we like to call secrets that your body's trying to tell you. We measure physiological indicators very accurately, uh, and that allows us to give you scores around recovery and strain and sleep and. Uh, there's this moment of self-discovery that I think people get quite passionate about and it makes them intrigued and all of a sudden they want to know what their friends are doing for slow wave sleep or REM sleep or how they're getting more of it or why their recovery is so low today after only having two drinks last night. And, you know, next thing you know, you go down this rabbit hole. (laughs) I can imagine. So tell us how, how the, how the original idea came about. What was the kind of spark? I got into the space personally because I was always into sports and exercise and I was uh, playing squash as a 20 year old college athlete at Harvard. And I felt like I didn't know what I was doing to my body while I was training. I was someone who used to overtrain. Yeah. And I was surrounded by other athletes who, you know, at times might undertrain, might get injured, might misinterpret fitness peaks. And, uh, and so I got very interested in sort of this notion of recovery, this notion of optimal training. And I got interested in what could I measure about my own body to perform at a higher level. Yeah. And uh, and that led me to the, the research department at Harvard and doing a lot of physiology research. 
I read something like 500 medical papers while I was in school. Wow. And, uh, and yeah, I wrote a paper myself around how to continuously measure the human body. And I think separate from the research that I did on physiology, I just broadly believed in uh, the future of technology. And even from a very young age, I was saving up money to buy technology. I remember I had the first Palm Pilot that could get on the internet. Um, I think it was the Palm, Palm Pilot 5. I bought the first iPod in my my you know like seventh grade class or something. So I I remember you know being very interested in computing and and I broadly believed that computers were going from being on your desk to being on your lap to being in your pocket to being on your body to eventually even being inside your body. And yeah. so that as an evolution seemed incredibly obvious to me. And the combination of this deep obsession that I had taken with with physiology and my belief that technology would play a big role in in health monitoring yeah led me to founding whoop at, at, at an age of uh 22. that's young so tell me about harvard as a kind of entrepreneurial environment one of my favorite films is is the social network and i picture you as a kind of one half of the winkervoss twins athletic ingenious working hard kind of super high performing is that what it's like is everyone a real overachiever there well, the interesting thing about Harvard, and maybe maybe my one of very few cr- criticisms of Harvard, is that it, it attracts people that have excelled at competing for so long that yeah. it gets harder to break out of that mold. You know, these are valedictorians; these are top athletes in their high school. These are people, you know, very accomplished people at young ages, who have gotten good at winning processes, and so. What happens by the you know, the time you're a sophomore or junior is now there's a new process to go into investment banking that's competitive, or there's a new process to go into consulting that's competitive, and so it naturally attracts these people who are you know good at winning processes, and I think there's a problem with that that I've now seen sort of being like eight or nine years removed from school, which is that people are going into banking and consulting as an example because they're attracted to the competitiveness of the process, unless so actually the career path. And they realize whether it's two years or five years, or in some cases I've talked to people 15 or 20 years into the industry, mm. that they're not doing what they love. And so that to me is a sad thing. And I think where Harvard could do a better job is it would inspire more people, more young people to start companies. Yeah. And I, I was fortunate in that I got to work out of the Harvard Innovation Lab which uh, was was actually a very new thing. You know, people think that Zuckerberg and Gates and these, you know, these legendary entrepreneurs that went to Harvard, you know, sort of had this natural setup at Harvard to start their companies. But in fact, it was just that they were very talented people and took yeah. initiative. You know, in Zuckerberg's case, he ended up moving out to California, right? Yeah. And Harvard deserves a lot of credit for Whoop being in Boston because I would have moved uh, whoop to New York. I was originally from New York and I was kind of expecting to move to New York, but Harvard said, Hey, here's this space that's going to be dedicated to young people starting companies. And you can work out of there with your co-founders or with new employees or whatever. And it'll be this like environment for creating companies. And so that's been an amazing initiative that, that Harvard's taken on and is a large, large reason why whoop is still in Boston today. Were you on that funnel when you were kind of 1920? Could you see yourself 
going into finance or consulting? Oh, totally. I mean, after my freshman year, I worked at a hedge fund. After my sophomore year, I worked at an investment bank. And after my junior year, I worked at a private equity firm. Right. So I, I you know, I did the same game. And I remember even my senior, senior year feeling almost a little embarrassed that I wanted to start a company, you know, feeling like, okay, I'm not going to be go, go make the, you know, these high paying jobs that all my friends are. I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, winning another process, if you will. And there's a natural, I don't know, there was an insecurity that came with that. And in some ways, I think that, that the young people who don't feel any pressure to go down some career path may be better off. They really may be better off because in some ways they're uh, more risk tolerant. Yeah. I think young people need to be more risk tolerant. And we'll probably get to get into this. You know, even if Whoop had failed, it would have been the right thing for me to do Yeah. because of how much I learned about myself in the process. Of and course. I think that's a very important thing for entrepreneurs of all ages, but especially younger people. What was the feedback early on when you were 22 and you were telling people, right, I'm starting this company in wearables? Did a lot of people tell you it was a terrible idea and you should stick to the safe path? Yeah, an overwhelming number of people told me that. Um, <laughs> what was and, their main um, criticism? Well, I should say this. I mean, starting a company was much harder than I ever thought it would be, but it wasn't as hard as everyone else told me it would be, which was to say that it was impossible. Hmm. So that's the natural tension I think anyone has when they create a business. It's going to be harder than you think it is. Uh, you've got a vision for how it's going to work, and that's a rosy vision, you know, and that's part of what gets you to do it. And that's a good thing. It's just there's a lot of stuff that happens along the way. And the younger you are, the more naive you are probably for what's going to happen. And right. in, in this case, uh, in this case, Whoop was my first full-time job. So obviously, a lot of things came up that, that I couldn't anticipate. You know, I think it also was probably my background. Sure, I studied research, but I was trying to build a deeply technical company without having a background personally in engineering or computer science or even being a doctor myself. Now, I was able to recruit two great co-founders, John Capralupo and Aurelian Nikolai. They had very deep technical backgrounds. So that all of a sudden that started to help complement these things and build them out. But I think it took years really for me to start absorbing ne negative feedback in a useful way. I put up a huge wall to negative feedback, probably from the ages of 22 to 25, 26, because I felt like so much of the feedback was distracting me from what I believed was the right mission for the company and vision for the company. And it, it was so negative that if I had listened to it, I don't think I would have been able to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And I think that's a challenging thing. And it's something that over time, you kind of have to watch yourself because you also can get a lot better from negative feedback and you have to be able to incorporate it into the way that you, you do anything and especially run a business. So that was probably one of the things that I, I most needed to learn as I grew as, as an entrepreneur and as a CEO. So we should probably explain kind of what the core premise of of Whoop is. Have we done that yet? It doesn't feel like we have because I've dived straight into the middle. Right. So Whoop is on a mission to unlock human performance. We build uh, technology across hardware and software and analytics. It's a completely vertically integrated system, which means we really build and control everything in the stack of technology. And for you listening to this, the benefits of Whoop are that it will help you change behavior and improve health. 
Whoop measures things like the strain of your day, strain of workouts. It measures how well you sleep in great, great accuracy. It measures your recovery every day from zero to 100%, red, yellow, green. Are you ready to take the day on or do you need more rest? Maybe you shouldn't exercise. And yeah. In many ways, Whoop is the first fitness product to tell you not to exercise, which I think is intriguing. Yeah. So a lot of Whoop is built to be this 24-7 life coach and tell you what you need to know. And uh, the main difference between Whoop and any other product in the market is after you've been on Whoop for 12 months, you have a meaningfully lower resting heart rate. You have a higher heart rate variability. Those are both fitness improvements. You're getting higher quality sleep and you're spending more time in bed. So those are you know great, great meaningful behavior change. And, uh, and I think improving health is really the hardest thing to do in this space. Where are you at the moment on the traffic light, red, yellow, or green? Today I'm green. I mean, I am ready for you. <laughs> okay. I'm very glad to hear it. <laughs> so let's go back then. You, you graduate Harvard and you go, as you say, this is your first job, hell for leather. Who, who did you surround yourself with? We know you've got your kind of technical co-founders, but who were the mentors and the people you went to for advice? It's hard to, to think about it and uh, because I just remember so many of the people I respected um, talking to about Whoop really telling me why it wasn't going to work or why really? I had to do it in a different way. Wow. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was, it was really discouraging. And it goes back to sort of like building up this wall to negative feedback. In some ways, I now look at it though as the reason that Whoop was successful was that we had an insight on the world that no one else saw. You know, many of the best ideas start from this contrarian point of view that later turns out to be right. So in 2012, I was saying things like, what if recovery is more important to performance than anything else? You know, that was like, that was kind of like a weird idea. I mean, coaches, when I went to meet with coaches for starter, because Whoop really started with professional athletes and, and the best athletes in the world. And then over time, we, we built this big consumer base. Uh, which is really everyone, but but our origins were in sports. And I would meet with uh, coaches and I would ask them, you know, what kind of technology would you want? If I could build technology for you, what would you want? And they always came back to exercise. Oh, I'd want more analysis on the video or the, the technique or the speed or the location or the sweat. And then when I asked them, well, what are the problems that you're facing? It always came back to player availability, you know, training optimally and injury. Hmm. And I just thought there was a huge mismatch between what people were asking for and what their problems were. And this is a bit of an insight for any anyone entrepreneurial listening to this. Customers tend to be incredibly good at describing problems. They tend to be less good at, at, at describing the solutions to those problems. And that's where the entrepreneur needs to come in and figure out what is the right thing yeah. to solve this problem. And sometimes the process of solving that problem may lead you to a solution that no one else sees yet. Mm. And I would say that was the case for Whoop, where we believed we had to build everything from scratch. You know, a lot of investors, for example, would say, oh, well, why don't you just build the software for a Nike fuel band or the software for a polar chest strap? And yeah. I said, you don't understand. Those technologies won't exist in a few years. Like they're not measuring the things they need to measure. They don't have the form factor that they need to have to be worn 24 seven. And, you know, people just looked at me like I was crazy because here you are a 22 year old competing with Nike, right? Yeah. 
And yeah. so I get it. I mean, I get, and I think I was crazy, but here we are. <laughs> well, I love that idea of, of contrarian thinking. Were there other kind of examples you had in your mind in sports or in, in health that people had, had said something contrarian and then 20, 30 years later, they proved to be right? Well, people forget that weightlifting is only like 30 years old, you know, 25 years old. And that started in professional sports as well. And now, you know, you can't go to a hotel in America that doesn't have a gym. So that, that was a story that to me permeated through sports. Another good example is a great technology company in the U S called Airbnb. I mean, it's a global company. They just went public, Mm. but you know, their founders said they were going to rent their beds out to strangers. (laughs) You know, that sounds pretty crazy. And, and a lot of people thought it was crazy and sure enough, you know, it's a hundred billion dollar company now. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned fuel band and I think back then around that time there was also jawbone must have been one of the big ones um and I don't know when when did Fitbit start that was fairly soon afterwards as well yeah this is funny Fitbit started in 2010 or 11 okay and I went to a recruiting fair my senior year at Harvard for Fitbit Wow, and, and to demonstrate how small the company was at the time, the CEO of Fitbit showed up to Harvard to do the presentation wow. for why engineers should join Fitbit. And so, and I think they expected a lot of people to show up, and for whatever reason, like there was only four of us, and so yeah. there was this big room, and there was all <laughs> these pizza boxes and T-shirts and whatever, and it was me and three other people. And three of us wanted a job and one of us wanted to start a company. And, uh, and so for me, it was like this great opportunity to talk to uh, an entrepreneur about how he had created Fitbit. And I really knew in that moment that they were going to build a big business, but it was going to be a very different business than the one I wanted to build. Yeah. And even though there's a lot of similarities between Whoop and Fitbit, you know, we both build hardware, we both measure stuff, we're appealing to consumers, the true nuances, the details of what we were going to collect and why we were going to collect it and how we were going to visualize that information were so profoundly different that I knew that we would be on very different trajectories. And sure enough, if you look at Whoop today, you know, it's a subscription business. We release software updates weekly. Uh, We release new analytics all the time. We're constantly doing research and partnered with research institutions and sports teams. And we don't even measure steps, which in many ways Fitbit deserves the credit for sort of bringing to the market yeah. because we don't think steps is a relevant metric. So it just really? it just shows you that there's massive nuance to industries that from a distance may seem quite similar. That's very interesting. I mean, this is a personal aside, but I'm a step, a real step addict counter now. I'm always 10,000 steps every day. And if I don't hit that, I get a bit superstitious that something bad's going to happen. So wh- why is it irrelevant? What's What should I be measuring instead? Lots of things, presumably. Let's start with the with the, the simple question of, are you actually measuring steps, right? If I move my arm around a lot, all of a sudden a Fitbit's giving me credit for steps yeah, and that may or may not be a step. But let's assume now that it actually is steps. You know, some days you probably want to put a lot of stress or strain on your body. And some days you don't want to at all. And what we measure at WHOOP is this notion of recovery, which is able to tell you how much strain to put on your body, right? If you're um, someone who's trying to get back in shape and you have a high recovery, okay, that's a day where you want to take on more strain. 
But strain could be in the form of weightlifting. It could be in the form of yoga or Pilates. It could be in the form of cycling. Now, I just gave you four legit workouts that put strain on your body that don't accumulate steps. That's true. So is step counting actually a relevant metric for any of those? Is that going to tell you what, what you did to your body? Probably not. Now, there's other days where your body's run down and you probably don't want to put as much strain or stress on it. And again, if you went for a walk, that might be a good thing to do if your body is run down Mm. and that would give you low strain, but it would give you a high steps marker. And again, there's just, there's a lack of correlation between this idea of step counting and this idea of strain. Yeah, And we believe that strain, which is a measurement of what's happening inside your body, your physiology, is much more important. I love that. That's very good. I'm going to stop step counting almost instantly. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of prototype process. We had John Foley, who's the founder of Peloton, on, and he his prototype journey was a kind of a journey from hell in many ways, because he, like you, was trying to build a hardware product and a software product and change people's behavior as well, all in one. So we had so many, so many problems along the way. I wonder what yours was like and what were some of the kind of the early versions? Yeah, I can sympathize with with that for sure. And Peloton's a great success story and touches on many of the themes that we talked about earlier. Again, they created a vertically integrated system. So they control every layer of that product experience. And that's one of the main reasons I believe that they're so successful. I think whenever you're going to go about building hardware, you have to be very specific about why you need to build it and what about it is going to create a a unique point of view in the market. Because building hardware, just to state the obvious, uh, is more expensive, more time consuming, and introduces a lot of risks. So for Whoop, when we were at a prototype phase, we were mostly focused on this idea of could we measure heart rate variability from the wrist accurately? Heart rate variability is this fascinating lens into your autonomic nervous system. Like most of the research that I talked about reading at Harvard was on this statistic heart rate variability. And it goes back to the 80s where, you know, Olympic powerlifters were looking at their heart rate variability every morning to determine whether they should lift weights or not. The CIA had used heart rate variability for lie detection tests. Uh, Cardiologists were using heart rate variability to determine if someone was going to have a heart attack. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, this is a very powerful statistic being used by a lot of different interesting and important, uh, you know, groups. Why isn't everyone able to measure this? Oh, well, it turns out you need an electrocardiogram to measure it. Electrocardiogram being that kind of like big, expensive hospital equipment, yeah. you know, that you see in movies like beep, beep, <laughs> beep, right? So that was the fundamental question. Could we measure this thing from the wrist really accurately within the same accuracy as an electrocardiogram? And mm. the first, I would say 12 months of whoop, were focused on that from a hardware standpoint. We were doing a lot of things from a design standpoint. You know, we sort of were building the software side of the business with the assumption that the hardware side of the business was going to work out. You know, it's like, it's truly like building a plane as it's taking off. I mean, uh, you just kind of have to assume it's all going to show up when it needs to go. 
And uh, fortunately, we were able to build a prototype that could really accurately measure heart rate variability within uh, you know, a few milliseconds of an electrocardiogram. And so that as a milestone was enough to help us raise you know, initial seed capital and the thinking being, okay, with that seed capital, we'd be able to take what was frankly a big, cumbersome, ugly looking prototype mm. and try to help, you know, turn it into uh, a consumer wearable. Yeah. And, you know, it was really the first, I would say two, three years before we had a product that I wasn't in completely embarrassed by. And even then, you know, when we started launching our Whoop 2.0 to high-end athletes, because that was our first market, I was still, there were so many things about it that I was just deeply embarrassed by, right. but I knew that we needed to kind of get it out into the world. Because to state the obvious, with a wearable gadget, there are lots of different considerations. If it's not comfortable or if it's incredibly ugly or just uncool looking, it could be the best product in the world, but people aren't going to want to wear it. What, what were you embarrassed by? Yeah. Wearable technology to be successful, you have to be great at like at least five things. You have to be great at hardware, software, analytics, design. You probably need some notion of brand or community. So it's a very, it's a very hard thing. I mean, how many things in your life do you wear 24 seven, right? Very few. From the earliest days, that was, that was the vision. Yeah. Now in 2014, 2015, two of our first hundred members were uh, LeBron James and Michael Phelps. So we started with truly the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And that for me was validating because although there were so many things I was embarrassed by about the product, I thought it was too big. I thought its battery life was too short. You had to constantly be um, attaching this modular battery pack to charge it. It had like an 18 hour battery life. Uh, it took a very long time to send data from the, the sensor to the phone because we were collecting so much data. Mm. Uh, it took too long for the scores to update on your phone. The Bluetooth connections would drop. I mean, all these things. But just the fact, for example, that we were able to give an athlete of that caliber a, a green recovery in the morning that was based yeah. on their physiology. Or, or or a deep analysis of their sleep. Maybe we'll talk about sleep at some point. Sure. That was enough to, for them to keep wearing it. And I'll never yeah. forget, I was sitting on my, my couch um, with my parents in like 2015. I was watching a basketball game and it cuts to commercial and it's LeBron James in a Kia commercial wearing a whoop strap. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. He wouldn't even take it off to shoot a promotion for another brand because wow. he was so into the data. And so it was this extremely validating moment, although we didn't have revenue and although the product is certainly not something a lot of people would have liked at the time, there was something about what we were collecting that would make someone of that caliber willing to never take it off. Yeah. And mind you, we weren't paying him anything, right? That was a big again, stubborn point of view early on is that we weren't going to pay athletes to wear our product. Yeah. Our product needed to deliver on its value proposition. And in turn, I bet you the best athletes will want to buy this because it'll be so important to their performance. So tell me how that relationship came about with LeBron, because as you say, he's probably one of, if not the most marketable star in sports. 
So how did you, as a small startup, manage to even get close to him without getting through all the layers of publicists and agents and everything like that? Well, the secret to getting to anyone famous or super successful is getting to someone in that person's life who has a big influence on that person's life who not everyone knows. Okay. And and in 2014-15 time frame, the personal trainer was still a very underrated role within a professional athlete's life. Mm. I know today, you know, Instagram and other platforms have sort of built up big personas for celebrity trainers. But at that time, uh, you know, everyone knew who uh, a superstar's agent was and their coach was and their wife was or their girlfriend. And just by by virtue of everyone knowing who those people are, they're impossible to kind of go through yeah. uh, as the right channel if you're an unknown startup. But the personal trainer who happened to spend eight to 10 hours a day with their athlete was actually a relatively unknown person. And so both in the case of, of LeBron and, and, uh, and Phelps, we'd gotten to them through their, their trainers. Now, mind you, the technology had to work and the trainers themselves had to like it, mm-hmm. but it was also the perfect entry point where it wasn't me telling LeBron to wear it. It was his trainer saying, Hey, I, I've tested this. I see how this could actually be incorporated into our program. You should wear it. Yeah. And that, that introduces another sort of Im- important insight when you're building something disruptive, you have to figure out who within the market that you're disrupting is going to be your ally. And while a lot of the, t- the technology that Whoop creates is designed for coaching, we actually never wanted to replace the professional coach or the trainer. We wanted to empower them. And that was a very it's a slight nuance but it was an important thing in helping us get off the ground so have you met lebron are you now best friends with him i imagine you probably are (laughs) you know i've gotten to know a lot of really uh really interesting professional athletes i would not say i've built a uh a real relationship with uh with lebron and I have enormous respect for for his career and to be fair you know we podcast is a little different but we like there's a difference between someone, you know, wearing the product, mm. right? In, in terms of how we think about marketing them. Like you would never see on our website that he was wearing the product because that's not the relationship that we have right. with, with athletes like that. We, we have to, you know, I was trying to just sort of tell the evolution of the, of the history of whoop, but of we're not, we're not in the business of, um, you know, using their, their name and likeness without, no, no, no. yeah, you know what I mean? It's just a nice tacit endorsement, of course. So we know, obviously, how important Whoop can be to athletes of that caliber. Uh, Sadly, I'm not, Will, if you can believe it, an athlete of that caliber, despite my incredible physique. So what, what, for someone like me, just an everyday guy, 30 years old, what are the kind of benefits to my life that a Whoop would bring? And look, it's worth noting that the majority of people on Whoop uh, are like you and me, right? (laughs) <laughs> and and they're not professional athletes. Thank you for putting us in the same bracket, by the way. Even though you were the captain of squash at Harvard, I'm very well. Flattered. I mean, look, today I'm a professional entrepreneur. So, okay. <laughs> you know, I think for, first and foremost, it's helping people identify a few simple things in their life that they can change that will make them healthier, happier, more optimal. Right? For many people, the jumping-off point is sleep. You know, it's a third of our lives and, and it happens to be a black box. 
and it doesn't need to be. And I like to say you can only really manage what you measure. So if you're not measuring your sleep, how are you going to manage that? How do you actually know what's going on? I'll give you an example. If you ask someone, hey, how much sleep did you get last night? And they don't measure their bodies. What they'll say is, oh, I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at six. So I got seven hours of sleep last night. Now, the reality is they didn't get seven hours of sleep. They spent seven hours in bed. Mm. Seven hours in bed translates to periods of time in which you are light in light sleep, awake, you're in REM sleep, and you're in slow wave sleep. Now, light and awake are pretty much uh, worthless. Slow wave and REM, that's where all the magic happens for your body. Okay? So really, you want to be thinking about how much time in bed did I spend in slow wave sleep and REM sleep? And again, let's go back to that example, seven hours in bed. We have people on Whoop who spend seven hours in bed and they get 30 minutes of REM and slow wave sleep. We have other people who spend seven hours in bed. They get five hours and 45 minutes of REM and slow wave sleep. Now, the person who got that much REM and slow wave sleep versus the person who got 30 minutes, it's a universe apart in terms of how you feel, a universe apart. Again, same amount of time in bed, but completely different results. And it's worth explaining why a REM and slow wave are so important. REM sleep is when your, your brain is repairing itself. So that's for cognitive function. So if you're listening to this, you probably want to have high cognitive function. Measuring your REM sleep is really important for that. That's when you're dreaming. So people who, who say, I never can remember my dreams or I didn't have any dreams last night, it might be that you're not getting enough REM sleep. Mm. Slow wave sleep, that's when your body produces 95% of its human growth hormone. So that's when your body's repairing muscles, joints, injuries. And so people think they get stronger in the gym. In reality, you're breaking your muscles down in the gym. You get stronger during slow wave sleep when you're repairing your muscles. So REM and slow wave sleep, critically important. And again, how do you know how much REM and slow wave sleep you're getting if you don't measure it? So that's the starting point. You start measuring this and you start to realize like, hmm, I'm actually not getting a lot of REM and slow wave sleep. Well, what are certain things that are affecting how much REM and slow wave sleep I get? And Whoop does a good job helping you unravel that. And it's often a couple simple things that you can start to tweak that really improve your life. And mind you, nowhere have I said yet, oh, you need to spend instead of seven hours in bed, nine hours in bed. I'm just saying, like, let's try to optimize the seven hours you're in bed. And there's a lot of different habits and behaviors that you can try, um, some of which are, are incredibly easy. The biggest hack for anyone listening to this is start going to bed and waking up at almost exactly the same time if you can. This is a notion called sleep consistency. And we've found that people who have sleep consistency, again, going to bed and waking up at the same time, have much faster recovery, higher heart rate variability, lower resting heart rates. It's a very effective way to improve your sleep and your recovery. Amazing. Sleep is kind of, it seems almost like the last frontier of of health. Someone said to me the other day, and they, they're fond of these kind of aphorisms, that sleep is the smoking of the, of the 60s and 50s. We have no idea how bad, bad sleep can be for us. Do you think that's fair, that we kind of, we're just discovering it now? Yeah, I mean, I, I do get the sense we actually know how bad sleep is for you. Uh, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> a lack of sleep is for you. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it, it seems to be correlated with virtually every disease state and every mental health issue. So clearly getting sleep is, is super important. I think where I get very excited is the role that WHOOP and others can play to help people understand, well, what are the few things that I need to do to improve my sleep? Yeah. And there's just a bunch of things. I'll I'll give you some quick hits. So for example, uh, people should be sleeping in a colder bedroom for the most part. I like to sleep at about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which is pretty cold. You want your bedroom to be really dark. Yeah. Uh, most people have too much sort of natural light coming into their bedroom while they're sleeping. If you're traveling a lot, which many listeners probably are, you know, consider wearing a sleep mask when you're in a hotel because there's a bunch of random lights like on the walls and stuff. Uh, you may want to experiment with supplements. You know, something like magnesium can help you uh, stay asleep. Something like yeah. melatonin can help you fall asleep, right? So if your mind's awake and you're trying to fall asleep, melatonin can be good for that. Uh, you want to be careful how closely to bed you eat. Yeah. So this varies a lot by individual as do the supplements. And again, this is something whoop is good at. It's good at showing you what's right for you, right? Not what's right for everyone, but what's right for you. But one thing that we see consistently is if you eat very close to bedtime, that can affect your sleep. So typically you want to, you know, be eating, uh, close to three hours before you're actually going to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, alcohol, uh, pr- this probably won't surprise people, but alcohol negatively impacts your sleep. What does surprise people is by how much and actually how little they have to drink to really disrupt their sleep. Wow. Depends a little bit on alcohol tolerance and weight and things of that nature. But typically once you're going past one drink into the sort of two drink on range, that's where you start seeing meaningful, meaningful decay in, in sleep. Another kind of hugely poignant and probably very unexpected um, success area for, for Whoop has been in the COVID pandemic because you had some incredible case studies early on when you realized that you were an early indicator or you could detect early indicators in a way that other people had sort of missed. Can you tell us about how that, how that came about? Yeah. So whoop, it's funny how many things go back to sort of your core, your core values, but two of our core values were to base everything we did on research and to move at an uncomfortable pace. Meaning we like, we want to move fast. We believe that's an important way to innovate. And so when we found out about COVID-19, which maybe was a little earlier than most, it was, it was, I would say around late January, we started doing research Late January 2020, we started doing research on COVID-19. By early March, we were the first consumer product to have COVID-19 tracking in the Whoop app. And we decided very quickly that we were going to build a large data set on what did COVID-19 look like on Whoop. And the power to having a a big platform with lots of people on it is that within three weeks, we had 2,000 people report that they had tested positive for COVID-19. Wow. So that was not an insignificant number of people. And we were able to quickly partner with CQU and Cleveland Clinic to look at that data set. And so we built a data set on what does COVID-19 look like before, during, and after on WHOOP. And the interesting thing about WHOOP is for the longest time, we always saw that illness showed up in one way or another. Illness, you know, typically if you have a cold or the flu, 
we'd see you have an increased resting heart rate. We see you have a decreased heart rate variability, disturbances in your sleep. And you'd often see like red recoveries on whoop, right? Which is a sign that your body's run down. So whoop in the past was good at picking up on illnesses, but where this is more complicated is how do you know that something is a cold or a flu, or in this case, COVID-19? And that's where we fortunately found a smoking gun in respiratory rate. So respiratory rate is the number of breaths that you have in a minute. Most people have a respiratory rate of somewhere between 10 and 20 breaths per minute while they're sleeping, which is when WHOOP measures respiratory rate. And historically, it's an incredibly boring statistic. So if you look at respiratory rate over the course of a year, it may not deviate by more than half a breath for an entire year on an individual. It's just a, a flat statistic. And when we looked at people on WHOOP who got the cold or got flu, their respiratory rate, again, flat. What was crazy is that people who got COVID-19 had massive increases in their respiratory rate. You know, we're talking 20, 30% increases from their baseline. And so we published research on that showing how respiratory rate could be a leading indicator for COVID-19. And this makes sense, by the way, because COVID-19 is a lower respiratory tract infection. So it makes all the sense in the world that if you have a lower respiratory tract infection, your respiratory rate would go up. And our, we've now published this research. It's in a medical journal and it's peer reviewed. Yeah. Uh, and so I would encourage people to check that out. Uh, it shows, you know, elevated respiratory rate can catch about 80% of cases within three days, wow. uh, which, you know, I think is pretty, pretty significant as a finding. That's incredible. And then, of course, from that, you got these kind of new, well, I suppose not deals, but you supplied in the, what's it called? The NFL is what I'm trying to say. And the golf tour as well, PGA. It was interesting. The golf one happened really fast. So the PGA tour was always a kind of a home for whoop. Many professional golfers had naturally adopted whoop and, and were just, you know, everyday paying consumers. And then uh, golf was one of the first sports to come back with the pandemic and they came back around June timeframe and Nick Watney, a professional golfer had been on whoop for 10 months. And the way the COVID protocols work is you would get tested on a Tuesday. And if you tested negative, then you would play in the tournament over the course of the week. Yeah. And Nick tested negative for COVID-19 on a Tuesday. He plays in the tournament on Thursday. He wakes up on Friday and he looks at his whoop and he has a 1% recovery and he has a respiratory rate that is increased by 30%. So he, he, he had a, re- a respiratory rate of 14 for 10 months straight, yeah. 14, 14, 14, 10 months straight. And then one day he wakes up and it's an 18. It just jumped off the page. Wow. And the crazy thing was he also felt fine, right? So these indicators show up independent from your feelings. That's another important thing to recognize, right? Feelings are overrated. There are physiological indicators you can measure. Feelings are overrated. And so Nick goes to the doctors and says, I need to be tested again. And they're like, no, you're cleared to play, blah, blah. Anyway, he, he convinces them finally to test him. And sure enough, he tests positive for COVID-19. And then he was able to drop out of the tournament. And you know, within 24 hours, the PGA Tour learned of this. And um, they procured over 1,000 whoop straps for wow. every, you know, every player on the PGA tour, plus, you know, all the caddies, all the media members, the staff, like everyone in the bubble. 
Wow. And so that was the beginning of a bunch of uh, partnerships like that. We ended up supporting the NFL PA and a bunch of NFL players as they went back the season. And it's been exciting to see that they've they've gotten all the way to the Super Bowl now. And and so they had a successful season. Um, We've done it with the LPGA. We've done it with a bunch of uh, schools. So, you know, we're doing everything we can to help. Amazing. So I mentioned at the start that a few of my friends were obsessive about their whoops. So I asked them this morning, I, I try to crowdsource some questions off them. Um, okay. So my friend Alex has asked, A, where did the name come from? And then part B, did you ever think you'd put a screen or interface on it? Was there ever a prototype that had a screen? So whoop as a name uh, was, well, whoop was a word that when I was in college, uh, a lot of my friends would say, and it was sort of this viral word for expressing happiness or excitement or energy. Yeah. People would say like, how are you feeling? And, and someone would respond, oh, I got whoop. I feel good. Yeah, I got whoop. <laughs> okay. So it's kind of a noun. I got whoop. Yeah. It, yeah. Nice. It was a, uh, it was like this sort of expression of energy and it was a word that made people smile and it was a word that people don't forget. And so that made it, in my opinion, a good name to build a brand. And the screen part, part B? It's a real question that we debate often. Uh, I can promise you that we've designed a lot of different things at Whoop. The nature of design is that you design things that never make it to market. I think that there are a lot of advantages to not having a screen. Uh, Mm -hmm. We really don't want Whoop to compete with watches. And we build technology to improve your life, not invade it. Yeah. And I think a lot of these smartwatch type products are noisy and excessive. And you already have something in your pocket that does a lot of that. So we're skeptical that that you need that for Whoop. Okay, good. I hope Alex is, is satisfied with those answers. My friend Ed, um, who is a bit of a worry war, and I mean that in the sweetest way, he said, is there ever a time when people talk about the kind of psychosomatic side effects that if their recovery is a bit less, then they get in a kind of downward spiral and they start to get really anxious and worried that they're getting ill or they're going downhill and actually it can become a kind of dangerous self-fulfilling prophecy. Does that ever happen? Or is that something you're, you're aware of and conscious of? You know, it's funny. If you go back in time and like look at... uh the development of the printing press people were critical of the fact that you know more people being able to read would be too much information yeah, and it would yeah. be bad for society so at every phase of real technological development i think people have sort of had one direction of feedback which is like oh is this too much information and i just think the right way to frame any types of information is the lens that you look at it through yeah and Having a a green recovery is one additional piece of information. Having a red recovery is one additional piece of information. Uh, Knowing that you're sleeping properly or not properly, those are things that I think can keep someone in check. And there's no question. You have to to learn how to apply the right filters to your life and to, to information. Yeah. So where do wearables go next then? I mean, is it going to get more and more kind of granular, the information we get and more and more prescriptive in a way? Because I mean, I would love it if I could wear something that said, right, you need to drink orange juice in the next 15 minutes to get to be optimal, or you need to, I don't know, go on a run. I mean, just really specific kind of even nutritional and, and I don't know, anything like that. Is that going to be the next stage? I won't speak for wearables broadly, but I'll speak for Whoop in that we 
want to be able to tell you the one to three things, you know, every day, week, month, year that you need to know to improve and be healthy. And over time, I think that's going to be a very wide set of things that we can tell you. Yeah. Um, Everything from, from diet to sleep, to training, to uh, meditation, mindfulness, breathing, you know, I think there's a lot of different categories that are highly personal. And, yeah. uh, and the promise of wearable technology is that it can really change people's lives. It really yeah. can. It can measure things about your body that you don't know, and it can tell you about those things. And in turn, you can change your life. And we've seen this on Whoop over and over again. It never ceases to be incredibly inspiring. Mm. And, uh, and if there's a benefit from COVID-19, it's that I think it's accelerated the rate at which society is recognizing the importance of health yeah. and, and also recognizing limitations with our existing healthcare system. Um, I'll, I'll speak for the U.S., but the U.S. healthcare system is a mess. And wearable technology has the potential to move a lot of curative costs to being preventative. Yeah. And preventative medicine is much more effective than curative. Amazing. One of the things on that note, I suppose, that that obviously Whoop teaches us is the importance of rest and the importance of time off and not kind of being always on. And I think in startup cultures, particularly with founders and entrepreneurs, there is a temptation to always be on and, and to be kind of squeezing every minute out of every day. I wonder, as a founder and entrepreneur and a driven person yourself, how do you kind of make sure you relax and make sure you're not always working? Well, I meditate uh, every day. Yeah. I learned transcendental meditation in 2014, and I've done it almost every single day since. And it's uh, it's changed my life. I highly recommend. You seem very, very, very relaxed as a as a as an interview guest and as a, a boss. You seem kind of wonderfully horizontal. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I I really try to be. I mean, I think a like a younger again a younger version of myself was kind of on the yo-yo or on the yeah. uh, sinusoid <laughs> sinusoidal curve of of trying to ride the success and failures of building a business, and you just realize over time that you need to stay even keel through all of that. Yeah, you know, if today wasn't a good day, tomorrow is going to be a good day. And if today's a great day, something bad may be around the corner. So you just have to create this sort of even keeled attitude. And that's what I've tried to do. I think it's made, but, but frankly, it comes with some of these other habits, uh, meditation being by far the most important one, uh, you know, finding time to exercise and still take care of myself. Yeah. You know, not eating crap, not like, you know, using alcohol as a, as a form of medication or whatever, you know, because I've seen other entrepreneurs struggle with that. Um, getting sleep, you know, having, having healthy relationships. I'm happily married. You know, it, I think it ends up being less about the business itself and more about you, the individual, how you're growing, how you're reacting to everything. Yeah, uh, that's at least what I've what I've found. The other thing I would add is that when you first start a business, this was the case for me. A lot of your identity is tied up in the success of the business. I was an incredibly young person. I did, you know hadn't had any other jobs. So if if Whoop was succeeding, I felt like I was succeeding. If Whoop was failing, I felt like yeah. I was failing. And 
that's not the right lens to look at it through. The most important thing is that independent from what the business is doing, you continue to grow and to improve. Yeah. And to look at those as two separate variables. And in fact, over time, it becomes even more important that you are growing and improving as, as a leader or a manager or an innovator and being pretty, uh, I think, introspective about that. At least, that, again, that's what I've tried to do. The other mistake that I made when I was younger is I would compare myself to these world-class entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, okay, whoop today is five people. And gosh, I can't convince the sixth person to join. I bet Steve Jobs never had to deal with this. You know, it's like a super, super unhealthy yeah. attitude. And, uh, and, and so a couple of things. One, it's, it's not comparing yourself to anyone else, right? Yeah. It's being really focused on you yourself. And two, I've now met very successful entrepreneurs and I've realized in talking to them that in the early days, I don't think they necessarily knew any more than you do. Yeah. Like they were figuring it out too. And so that goes back to this importance of, of um, finding ways to grow personally. So I just want to touch on that because you were obviously just a handful of people at the start. How many people work for Whoop now? Uh, About 370 which is a hell of a lot. And obviously, as you said, this was your first ever job. So you hadn't really, apart from those kind of internships, worked for other organizations. You, you, but you were driving the bus from, from a very, very early age. How did you work out how to, we talk a lot about culture. How did you work out how to build a culture and hire the right people and not hire the wrong people, which can be just as bad? And how did you, how did you do that as you were doing it, <laughs> if you know what I mean? Yeah, it took me a while to articulate this. Uh, but the, I think first and foremost, the key was the way I th- thought about hiring people and the way our, our early team, frankly, yeah. thought about hiring people. And in hindsight, what I've always looked for were people with a combination of high intensity and high humility. Okay. High intensity being a great work ethic, a great uh, you know desire to excel at that thing that they're great at, whether it's coding or designing or marketing, right? Like that's their thing and they want to keep diving into that. So there's a level of intensity that comes with that. And high humility, recognizing that in the pursuit of excellence, you don't have all the answers. And I um, I just came to recognize that when you're in a small environment and it's fast paced and you've got individuals representing entire departments, yeah. you know, how do you send data from a whoop strap to an iPhone? Okay, pretty simple question, very complicated answer. There's a lot of different things to consider. So you've got five people in a room, a product manager, a designer, uh, you know, a signal processing engineer, and uh, a firmware engineer, and they're going to figure out how that works. And there's just this natural collision that happens, right? Yeah, naturally. And that collision's actually fine. You know, friction can be good. But what you want is for the group to come up with the best answer for the company, not I came up with it, right? Yeah, like not yeah. that feeling of it was me. And and so that's where I think the humility piece comes in. And then the outcome of this is when you have a lot of people that are like what I just described, you can create a much flatter hierarchy because people are comfortable talking to one another at all levels. If I'm a director, I don't have to go to my VP for the VP to then go to that VP for the VP to then go to that director, then go to that engineer for me to talk to that engineer. 
I just go directly to that engineer, right? So it's much more efficient. Um, it's more transparent as a consequence. And you ultimately work towards building an idea meritocracy where the best ideas win. And it doesn't yeah. matter if you're an intern or you know, a VP of what. So we've got these questions we ask everyone at the end that are a little bit more personal and maybe a bit more fun. Who knows? We'll find out. So the first one is, uh, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this? Say say Whoop had never happened and and you'd, got, I don't know, maybe gone to Goldman Sachs or something. <laughs> well, you know, I think I would be building a business. I, I've just realized that's my calling to to be creating products and teams and, and uh, you know, trying to make an impact. Do you have other kind of things you'd like to do, other ideas that are kind of in your iPhone notes sitting there? I have a number of ideas and and they often are, are sort of framed around problems to solve. But, you know, I, I like to do things all in. And yeah. today I'm all in on Whoop. Quite right too. What's your worst habit? Worst habit. It's funny. The first thing that came to mind was biting fingernails, you know, it's like <laughs> a weird nervous, uh, immature thing that I've, that I do from time to time. I do that as well. I think it must be fairly common. Maybe, maybe we're very creative. I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. We'll find out. What's the most impressive thing you can cook? Uh, let's see. I think the tastiest would be, uh, like a seared Wagyu. Wow. You know, my wife and I have gotten into cooking and uh, that's one of my favorite things to buy is like some nice high-end Wagyu and you, you know, you kind of sear it on both sides, make some, make some sushi rice and maybe some ginger to go wow. with that. Yeah. That's good. What are you most proud of in your career so far? I think building Whoop and, and the people and the product that come with that, you know, I think Whoop as a company attracts incredibly brilliant, hardworking people that have very good intentions for the world. And I think the product, um, the fact that it's able to, to change behavior positively, you know, it's technology that I think is doing real good in the world. Uh, I'm incredibly proud of that. What's your biggest failure on the other hand, or your biggest regret? I, I, tr I try to live pretty regret-free. And I, I also am someone who kind of believes that you go back in time and you start tweaking a few things and maybe everything else ends up different. Yeah, and, and I also I don't think about failure uh, in sort of this conventional way. I, you know, I I try to frame almost every negative as a positive in one way or another. Uh, if something doesn't you know work the way it was supposed to, okay, well we just figured out one more way not to do that. You yeah. know, it's like it's so much. I think of of life is sort of the framework that you approach it and and in some ways it's even playing little tricks on yourself to keep going and to maintain momentum yeah we had um jamie simonoff from ring the founder of ring the smart doorbells i mean he it wasn't a failure but he had a moment where a glitch in the software basically if they weren't very lucky would have destroyed the entire company pretty much overnight have you ever had anything like that where it's a similar kind of thing with software and hardware have you ever had any hugely dark moments Definitely. <laughs> That's the short answer. Us? Yeah. Well, I mean, you Enough, know, basically. Yeah. We've had plenty of those. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's encouraging, I suppose, in a way. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? Probably speaking new languages. Yeah. You know, my wife speaks about four or five languages. Wow. And that, I'm like incredibly envious of that. I speak one language. <laughs> what was the last, <laughs> last piece of advice you gave someone? Well, I, you know, I think in the, con in the context of, of building a 
uh, a business, 65% of startups fail because uh, the co-founders get in a fight or the founding team gets in a fight and they can't work together. And so I was giving someone advice recently <clears throat> related to their relationship with their founding team. And it was, it was really like, don't let that be the reason that you guys fail, you know, wow. like figure out a way to hug it out, <laughs> you know, figure out the things that you're grateful for, for having them on your team yeah, and work through it. Yeah. Cause it ends up being that the stakes just feel really high. And so these smaller things seem very amplified. Yeah. And I've seen this happen to founding teams where they let, they let the emotions of the moment mess up their relationship and yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't need to be, it's, it can be, you can work through it. Are you quite good at keeping those two things separate kind of business and pleasure, so to speak, like in the fact that some founders kind of don't necessarily socialize, but some other ones are kind of best mates with the people they work with. Well, I would say I've become very close with, with everyone on my direct management team. I would say I'm close Certainly with my two co-founders, John and Aurelian, um, you know, we've been working together for eight or nine years. Yeah, of and course. I'm sure at times, you know, all of us have, have wanted to kill each other, but, but here we are, right? Yeah. Nine years later. And you think about some of the arguments that could have screwed up the relationship. And now we've got, you know, all these employees and all these people wearing our product and a company that's valued over a billion dollars. Like, yeah. wouldn't it have been such a, a shame a shame right yeah absolutely is there a phrase you'd like to banish from the earth or something you really hate when you hear it in the office i hate the i hate the expression fail fast right you know for some reason, <laughs> that's become a popular thing to say in the world of startups as in kind of try things very quickly and if they don't work move on to something else yeah just to, to me it's the wrong framework like you want to succeed fast you know, and, yeah. and keep finding success. You don't really want to be that focused on failure. You want to constantly looking for ways to succeed. And part of that comes back to, again, the framework of how you think about what is failure. You know, it's almost, it's almost a useful word to remove from your language. What uh, have you done recently for the first time? <laughs> I mean, I just got back from Hawaii we were, we announced nice. our our partnership with the PGA Tour there, so Whoop is the official wearable of the PGA Tour now, which is quite cool. And the first tournament of the year was in Hawaii, so I was in I was in Hawaii, which has got to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. What's your most treasured possession? I think possessions are a little overrated. Okay, do you have an early prototype of a Whoop somewhere that you love and adore, and that will one day be in a museum? We do have a bit of a Whoop museum, which shows <laughs> the very early evolution of Whoop prototypes. And uh, again, it's a healthy thing to look at because it just shows you what you can start with and what you can develop over time. You know, if you keep working at something every day for a decade, it's yeah. unbelievable how much progress you can make. But a lot of people, I think the challenge, the challenge is a lot of people, even if you told them, okay, you have to work at this thing really hard every day for 10 years. And at the end of that, you're going to be really successful. They still might not do it. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people might respond to that and say, well, is there a shortcut for that? Yeah. You know, like there's, there's a little bit too much of a, uh, a pressure in society, I think, to find, find shortcuts. 
so can I ask you another question? It's not something we ask everyone, but I'm just wondering on that note, how you celebrated when, when you got valued at a billion dollars, when that, when you knew that you were running a company that hit that three comma mark, as they like to say, how did it feel? Uh, look, it, it felt amazing. Uh, and I, I, you know, went and had a, had a few drinks with John and, and Aurelian and, and, you know, some of the people who have been building this business with me for so long. Um, obviously in the world of COVID, it's kind of hard to overcook a celebration. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but I do think that the most internal reward I feel for whoop is when I get messages from people who wear the product and share how, uh, it's changed their life. Yeah. And that, that to me, I think is, I've, I've come to have a, a greater appreciation for that than, the the financial success that's come with it is there a book that's influenced you more than any other well a a book that was helpful for me in building whoop uh was called shoe dog by phil knight the creator of nike nice and nike's a brand i've always had enormous respect for and many things about the way that whoop was founded i realize resemble the way that nike was founded and what I respect a lot about Phil Knight's book is he spends an enormous percentage of the book talking about the very early years of the company when it wasn't even called Nike, it was called Blue Ribbon Sports. And just the painful detail that they went into to like get that first sneaker right and yeah. all the intricacies of that first sneaker. And it just it just reminded me of the very early days of Whoop and it it reminded me of some of the early values that we've had as a company and uh, it just made me feel like we were on the on the right direction. And again, I have, I have great admiration for Nike. Yeah. And finally, do you have a, a personal motto? Personal motto. I probably have a, a number of different things that I say to myself. Um, you know, keep going is one thing that always comes to mind because I think so much of being um, – a successful entrepreneur, a successful anything. I've gotten to meet a lot of successful people across sports and uh, business and uh, even uh, research and science. And a lot of what they, they have in common is being able to maintain enormous output, but for a long time, Yeah. right? Uh, people often talk about, well, building a company is more of a marathon than a sprint. Yeah. But that actually kind of misses the point, because if you're going to be a world-class marathoner, you're running like four-minute miles, right? How many people can even run a four-minute mile, let alone do it for 26.2 miles? And that is the right analogy for building a very successful company, being a a high-performing professional athlete. You have to find a way to have that kind of output for a very long time without burning out. Yeah, And Whoop as a product has helped me a lot with that because it, it keeps me in check. It makes me, you know, know when I shouldn't do more or know when I shouldn't make, you know, 25 more decisions in a day, shut it down. So I think keep going is a good way to frame it. Good. Will, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. No, it was a pleasure. I feel like we're, we're a little bit wiser, but also maybe a bit healthier. Maybe I'll sleep better tonight. I hope so magnesium darkness okay i'm on it thanks so much well i hope we can catch up again soon maybe in the real world i'd like that thanks joe 
if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.